people have opinions without being fully informed. Trust me, I'm a Canadian here. I don't care if you're a Christian, Messianic, or Hebrew roots. I want to know if your theology is biblical. Maybe I'm right. Of course I'm right. If you're going to cite a source, be responsible. You know, cite your source. Your long goes to college. Hey, we're just having a conversation. There's only 36 people listening anyway, right? You can Google it. Wow, at what point does history matter? At what point does truth matter? An alien invasion. Is it biblical? Of course it is. Look, there's a way to do scholarship and a way not to do scholarship. you got to set your source. Who's your source? My best friend's sister's boyfriend's brother's girlfriend heard from this guy who knows his kid is going with the girl. And that about sums it up. What up and shalom, welcome to the Robin Caleb Show, the show where theology matters, scholarship counts and theology matters. My name is Caleb Haig, with me of course, Rob Van Hoff. Sorry about that, my audio was turned off in another place. So the uh, the people in the radio got to hear it twice. Let's see, you know, uh, uh, hello and what up and shalom to everybody out there. Uh, it's uh, Last week we had some significant problems with our YouTube stream. And so uh, this week, hopefully we got them all worked out. And uh, so, yeah, we're going to check it. What up, Rob? How you doing, man? Doing well. What's Thank going you on? Much. Just, I don't know, I feel like I'm juggling all sorts of different things. And praise God, I haven't dropped anything lately. <laughs> Good. No broken eggs on the floor. Cool. No, uh, no broken shells that need tacoon. It looks like we actually uh, are live, and like we got ten people, uh, ten people already uh, going here, already in the chat room, which is great. Mm. And yeah, all right. I'm going to promote somebody here to uh, a moderator. So there we go. All right. So now we got a moderator in the chat room on YouTube for everybody out there in radio land. Sorry about all this. We're just trying to finally get everything going the right way. Um, anyway. Okay. So here we go. Let's talk. We got a lot going on and, um, there's been a lot of feedback in the past week. Now, uh, first of all, I should say last week we, um, we talked about, we talked about, well, Hillel and Shammai was like the main topic. And we're going to get to, basically, we have to touch on almost everything that we talked about last week. Um, but uh, one of the passing comments I made, and, you know, I, as soon as I said it, I thought to myself, I probably shouldn't have said that, but we just I'm kept going. And, yeah, I'm going to pay for that. And, and, and I certainly have. Uh, the comment was about uh, Dr. Instone Brewer, who's, I, I would consider him a, a, a acquaintance. I had the distinguished pleasure of, uh, of interviewing Dr. Instone Brewer uh, at the uh, Society of Biblical Literature in two years ago, three years ago in San Diego. Uh, it, was, it was really a treat to be able to sit down and pick his brain. Now, admittedly, I disagree with Dr. Instone Brewer on, on several issues. And one of the bigger issues would actually be um, the issue of 
of dating, obviously, the Mishnah and the Talmud and the sayings of those back into the first century. Now, Dr. Instone Brewer certainly has more credentials than I will ever have in my entire life. And uh, he he reads uh, he reads his, uh, you know, his Mishnaic Hebrew, and uh, he, he knows the Mishnah and the Talmud much better than I ever could imagine I ever would. Um, so I, I certainly don't want to put down Dr. Instone Brewer in any way, shape, or form. He's uh, done work in the Trent Project, and um, I mentioned in passing that I thought maybe Perhaps the Trent Project was put on hold because in recent scholarship, uh, reading the Mishnah and the Talmud back into the first century, uh, has scholars have moved away from that is basically what I, uh, what I was trying to say. Um, someone contacted, one of our listeners contacted Dr. Instone Brewer and Dr. Instone Brewer said, no, absolutely not. It has not been put on, on hold uh, because of dating. In fact, he adamantly denied that and said that uh, he would adamantly reject my notion that uh, Hillel and Shammai were not schools of the first century. Um, now, I before I started on the um, before I started on the thesis that I'm currently attempting to research and write. For a very short time, I had a different thesis that I was working on. And it actually was on this specific topic, which was dating the uh, rabbinic literature back into the first century and whether or not that was something that could be done. Now, I've read Dr. Instone Brewer's, uh, his, his uh, method of dating some of these, uh, these rabbinic sources back into the first century and how he believes it can be done. And with all due respect to Dr. Instone Brewer and uh, the fact that he's a, a much better scholar than I will ever be, um, I, I simply disagree with him and, uh, take that for what it is, you know, what it's worth. Uh, I, yeah, I, I, I just don't think that, uh, his dating method, uh, he's dating the Mishnaic work against itself and he's doing that through language. But as, uh, Rob was reading out of some of his book before we came on air, um, he will even admit that the sayings that are in the Mishnah or the Talmud are not the exact sayings that would have been in the first century, but they had been changed to uh, be able to uh, be memorized. So I don't understand how the language of these things could be read back into the first century. Rob, what are your thoughts on this? Oh, well, just, yeah, this is, I was just looking through the one of the volumes. It's volume one of the Trent, uh, Traditions of the Rabbis from the Era of the New Testament. Um, this is volume one. Uh, prayer and agriculture. So it, uh, the first two um, uh, orders of the Mishnah, or the first two rather tractate, uh, Masechets of the Mish of the first order is uh, Berachot and Peah, which are uh, corners. I think it's Peah. Yeah. Yeah. So it it anyway. Um, anyway, so he's got an intro here, and he 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 gives some Hebrew text. Of each Mishnah, not the entirety of each Mishnah, but he gives some Hebrew text, and then he has the translation. But he he sets it up as uh, this is introduction, page one. He says the text which can be dated before seventy C.E. is printed in a bold font. So uh, basically, you go through, and he says text that can be dated before 70 CE is printed in a bold font. So that means he's making it for him when he prints, you know, the printers print this, the bold font is where in Stone Brewer says that's a text that can be dated before 70 CE. But then later on the same page, he says here, 
However, they do not represent the actual words spoken or written before 70 CE because they've been edited into later collections and then abbreviated and rewritten for easy memorization. Um, but then, and so he uses the word faithfulness, or faithful three different times in this essay that I saw. So he attributes to the editorial rabbis, Yehuda Hanasi, you know, in probably the year 200 or whatever, um, attributes to him the, an ideology of faithful preservation of history on one hand, but then he says it's highly edited and re, uh, reworded for the sake of easy memorization. But then he says they worked with much care, great attention to detail. They were especially careful to preserve opinions that disagreed. Um, they can be trusted to transmit these traditions faithfully. We should, but, but we should also always be aware of the possible errors and in innovations. And wording should not be regarded as quotations from the early rabbis. That's page two. So on one hand, he says text that you see in here in black is dated before 70. And then right, right afterwards, he says, well, we can't really, you know, they were trying to be faithful, but they reworded it. That's all in page one and two. It, it's really problematic. But he, at the, he sums up the essay, the assumption of the present work, that means of this Trent series, yep. is that these rabbinic editors attempted to faithfully transmit early material. Okay, how do I... How can I make a judgment? How can I know, as a, if I'm reading as a historian, how can I make a judgment about uh, such a person? Because another person can come along, like Lawrence Schiffman, who's actually an Orthodox uh, Jew, who's sure. an academic, yeah. who writes that he's very clear. He says, as the Tanaim developed Halakha, one of the things they were doing is more and more excluding Jews who believed in Yeshua. So that the, the very halakhic or, or the very shape that some of the Mishnaic statements take were to were to shape community and exclude, um, you know, to make a sharp distinction between insider and outsider. Yeah, exactly. And so, uh, what Instone Brewer's imagination of attributing the early rabbinic editors of faithfulness to a tradition of history makes it sound like these rabbis are innocent of community building and of boundary marking, with, uh, specifically when it comes with uh, the notion of other competing Jewish groups that are also saying that they have authoritative tradition and authoritative ways of doing things. Well, Particularly and, those Jews who believe in Yeshua, who are, as Lawrence Schiffman says, if you just read his book, Who Was a Jew? He, he just says, yeah. Um, he says it was progressively, the, the Holocaust hal progressively excluded who be, what we think of as Christians. Once again, you know, I, I, I want to be able to have a, a sit down and still have coffee with, with Dr. Instone Brewer at the next SBL. So, uh, you know, once again, I, I respect Dr. Instone Brewer as a, as a as scholar, but I think that, uh, I think that one could make a case that uh, other scholars, modern scholars, have challenged the idea that, uh, uh, the, or the suggestion that Dr. Instone Brewer is making. Let's just say that. Okay. Um, but I, apparently we, met, we misspoke. We represented that the Trent yes, and that's, uh, yes. series is oh, has over. I think the last one was 2011. And I apologize I to Dr. Instone Brewer for that. And I, and I, I want to make sure that everyone knows that is not the case. Dr. Instone Brewer is, in fact, uh, continuing on with this work. So, uh, okay, so the first one, volume one, was 2004. 
Volume two is 2011. And so, um, what does that, that's six years. So the first one was about seven years between volumes, then another six years. So maybe he's got another one in the works coming out here soon. Yeah. Um, all right, so let's let's move on. I want to I want to keep going. We got a lot to get to today. Uh, it should be uh, said first of all that uh, obviously the Robin Caleb Show is brought to you by TorahResource.com. Go to TorahResource.com, find all kinds of great stuff. Right now we have uh, in the chat room, which is on YouTube by the way, uh, and it looks like we have a good showing in there right now. It's nice to see everybody in there, and uh, just hello to everybody in the chat room. It's great to see the conversation that's going on. Um, right now in the chat room, uh, the radio program, our radio programmer, Gary Springer is, uh, moderating our chat room along with our graphic arts designer, Michael Gonzalez. And so a big thank you to those guys for helping us out. We really do appreciate it. I know that it's time out of everybody's day to have to sit down and actually listen to us. Yap. Um, and then of course, Please, we love comments and we love uh, we love hearing from everybody. You can do that two ways, okay? Uh, you can do that by going uh, giving us a call. If you're in the United States or Canada, you can call 253-465-3205. It's just a comment line. It is not. Uh, it's it's you're not going to talk to either of us. So if you disagree with us, don't feel like you're going to be opposed or anything like that. We'd love to hear from you, especially if you disagree. And then also you can uh, write us an email, of course, and our email address, uh, we use my email address, which is chegg at torahresource.com. I'll give it to you again. It's C-H-E-G-G at torahresource.com. Okay. With that over, I just want to, I got to mention this. I, I assume that you've seen this, Rob, but I haven't mentioned it. So, but I put it on my Facebook page. So I assume that you've seen it. Maybe not. Um, this from... Uh, now we discussed, let's, let's start this a different way. We discussed the did okay in show 154. So you can go to our YouTube page. You can find show 154 and we talk about Toby Janicki and, and some of the claims that he's made. Um, so uh, this from page 29, volume two, issue 16, spring 2017 Messiah journal by FFOZ. Now this is the wording that they use. This is their wording, not mine. Okay. And somebody sent me a screen, uh, sent me a picture of this. I, I don't actually have the book in front of me. Somebody actually sent this to me. Imagine discovering a lost book of the New Testament. In 1880, such a book was discovered inside an ancient codex in a monastery library in Istanbul. The Didache. <laughs> the way of life. And this, so the, the book is called The Way of Life, and the subtitle is The Rediscovered Teaching of the Twelve Jewish Apostles to the uh, Gentiles. <laughs> so I, I'm not trying to be a jerk here, but can someone please tell me is I, the way that I'm reading this? And, you know, I'm friends with Toby on, on Facebook, and uh, I, I truly doubt that any of those guys listen to this show. Why would they? Uh, you know, why would anyone? But at the same time, I mean, I, I, I don't think they're part of our 36 uh, listeners. And uh, But at the same time, the way that I'm reading this is that FFOZ is suggesting that the Didache should be canonized. That it's part of the lost canon. And the, from the show that we did in, in show 154, uh, it seems to me that what they're actually saying is that this is the, the way of sanctification for the Gentiles. This is the rule book. Am I out to lunch on this one? Yeah, it sounds like it's, it's the Indiana Jones marketing. I mean, 
it sounds like a screenplay for a movie. I mean, that imagine, you know, it reminds me of the Copper Scroll yes. uh, advertisements. Yes. I, I just, it's, you know, they're, they have to make a living too, you know. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> come on. Whoa, you know, whoa, whoa. Wait, 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 wait. No, no, no. I'm sorry. Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't know, man. I don't know. I, I think it's crazy. If I, I had to, if I had to imagine that, uh, that the, that the canon was expanded to 67 books, completely, and... completely wrongheaded. And it shows that they do not, they, they lack a, a grounding in history. They're, they're building off imagination. Um, and what they would like the world to be like, well, rather than it, it says a new rather tr- than the reality of, of it says it says a a New Testament uh, no I'm sorry a new tr- uh, translation and, and messianic Jewish commentary by Ch- Toby Janicki. I, I, so does he know Greek? Well, that's what I was just going to say. I'm oh, impressed. Maybe he does. I, I you know I I have to assume that uh, he's uh, undertaken uh, the task of learning biblical Greek, or, or, which is. Excellent. I, I think that that is exceptional. If, if Toby's uh, has has learned uh, uh, Greek well enough to be able to translate, uh, you know, a book of like this that did okay, uh, kudos to him for that. Uh, but whoever their marketer is, somebody needs to rein them in. This is uh, this is not good. All right, let's move on. Um, let's see here. Ah, yes. Okay, let's move on to this. So last week we discussed. <laughs> Luther and I, I'm going quick through this. Thank you to the uh, uh, thank you to the to the chat room for they're they're having the chat room right now is having a lively discussion about uh, the Talmud, which is great. Um, okay, so I want to run through all this really quickly though. Um, so last week we talked about <laughs> Takun Olam, well, no, not Takun Olam. I'm sorry, Beit Tefila. Uh, productions and uh, the gentleman who runs this, his name is Scott, and he actually left a comment on one of our videos this last week that said, "You guys have brought up some good uh, some good questions that I need to address." Well, I would suggest that there's a lot going on uh, in some of Scott's videos that needs to be addressed a lot, um, and in fact, for those who are students at Torah Resource Institute. If you're if you're not or you haven't been, I would suggest uh, <laughs> taking classes. But also, uh, even if you don't want to, you can, once the uh, the alumni quarterlies come out, they can be found on the Torah Resource website. So you will be able to find this gem. This is not published yet. This is by my father, the Divine Authority of the Pauline Epistles, a short study on the canonicity of the Pauline Epistles. Uh, this was uh, not inspired by by uh, the video by Scott. Oh my word! What's going on? I apologize. Um, sorry. Uh, I don't know if everybody heard that out there. My phone rang on my computer. Anyway, um, okay. So this was not inspired by Scott's video, but uh, it certainly is timely. Um, and so what what we addressed last week was that uh, Scott suggested that uh, Luther changed uh, the Bible in his German translation, and that he, uh, that he did so in Ephesians 2.8. Uh, now, this was a misquote by Scott. This was not a misquote by us. In fact, we'll play this, uh, this clip again. I've, I've pulled the clip again. I've made it longer so that we can uh, understand exactly what Scott's trying to say here. Um, but uh, Steve writes in and he says, a simple Google search would have shown that Romans uh, 3.28 
was the referred to verse. Yes, he got the verse wrong, but Luther did add the word alone to another verse. At least you admit he added mercy seat. It makes no difference that Tyndale did as well. Luther was supposedly going from the Greek, not the Tyndale portions, both added to the Bible. Okay, hang on. Now, before we address, before we address this and the idea of adding to the Bible, this shows that 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 uh, Steve at least missed the the point of what we were saying, or at least what Scott I was saying. Steve? Is Steve this is Scott? Steve. Steve's the one who made oh. the, the comment, not oh, Scott. Okay. Okay. So, um, and and he's right. He is right. Luther did add the word alone or only to Romans three twenty eight. Now, I'm not a German scholar. I don't even know German, and so I and and I admit that. Okay. So, uh, Nathan. And I love Nathan. Thank you, Nathan, for this comment. This is such a great comment. Uh, he says, there is a common Roman Catholic canard that Luther added alone to Romans 3.28, not to Ephesians 2. Whoever the speaker is in the recording simply messed that up. Okay, and then I'm going to stop with Nate's uh, comment real quick. I want to read Romans 3.28 so everybody can hear what verse we're actually talking about. For we maintain, this is uh, out of the NASB, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. NASB did not add the word only or alone. However, in Luther's translation, and once again, I don't speak uh, German, however, uh, the uh, several, I've looked at several translations, direct translations of Luther's uh, translation, and he said, uh, for we maintain that, you know, it's by faith only or by faith alone apart from works of the law. Okay, so uh, let's keep going with Nate's comment. And I should say that he references a book here. So he says, uh, Joseph Fitzmaier, who is himself Roman Catholic, does an excellent job of addressing this charge in Romans. A new translation with introduction and commentary, the Anchor Bible Series 360 through 361. Now, I actually looked this up and uh, read what uh, Nate was referring to. And he's right. This is a great article, and, and I would recommend it to anyone. Um, but Nate summarizes this, this article extremely well. And so I didn't feel like I should try to rewrite what Nate had already written. Uh, I'm just going to read his whole comment. He says, he points out that Luther was not alone, pun intended, in emphasizing that it was faith by, by itself, but was following the theological tradition which preceded him, including Origen, Ambrosiaster, John Chrysostom, Aquinas, and Augustine, and more. Finally, Luther himself mentioned both that he was following the, preceded, uh, the precedent of those who preceded him, and that accurately bringing the Greek into German required the emphasis. You can read Luther's own response to the controversy in his open letter on translating, which was written in 1530. It should be noted that Luther's translation was not the only one to include alone. In Romans 3.28, even the Roman Catholic Nuremberg Bible, 1483, contained the Alain, as well as the Italian Bibles of Geneva, 1476, and of Venice, 1538, which said per sola fide. Okay, so let's, now this, back to, to Steve's comment, uh, who said, uh, you know, Luther added to the Bible. Okay, Luther himself. He says, would just say all these others did too. Right? Yeah, he would say that all these. I would think. I would think that that uh, Nate would say that all these other people were adding to the Bible as well. Okay, so let's go back. The point for me is, okay, I I admit, I admit, Luther added the word only or alone to his translation in Romans three twenty eight. However, he was not the first person to do this. This is an important point, and this is the point. He was not the first person to do this. 
Steve thinks that that doesn't matter at all because he wasn't. But but listen, listen to what what Scott from this uh, uh, Bait Teffy Law production says. Let me also say up front here that I am not a Paul basher. I believe the translators took many liberties with Paul's letters, adding and subtracting things here and there to push their agendas, mostly lawless agendas. Okay, right, I'm gonna stop right here. By the way, this clip is two minutes long, so you're gonna have to bear with me on this, but I wanna stop right here for a second. What Scott is suggesting is that somehow Luther influenced our minds or the Christian church's minds to believe that the Torah was done away with. Mostly lawless agendas. This is what he's claiming. The problem is, is that the church rejected the Torah way, like over a thousand years before Luther wrote anything. Right? So, I mean, the claim that Luther somehow maliciously put this, uh, you know, this into the Bible so that uh, people would would say that we should do away with the Torah is is still ridiculous. Well, For example, with the Bible... I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, go well, ahead. and it also removes... Uh, it's kind of a, a failure to appreciate Luther's historical situation. He's... he's when, his translation <laughs> of Romans is to help people uh, kind of sever themselves from Catholic, uh, uh, what do they call it, indulgences, you know. The Pope. Things that you could, yeah, the, the things Pope's that people authority. could do to merit, yes. uh, merit some sort of spiritual righteousness or, or spiritual, you know, some sort of gain that you get in return for doing these things that are not biblical. but, but um, And so the emphasis on faith is... Part of the Reformation cry, I think, particularly with this passage 328, to to sever to the best of Luther and the other reformers' worldview, the From, difference between the Word of God and, and the commandments of men. Now, do we look back and say, wow, they were short-sighted or the apple didn't fall far from the tree? Sure. But, but it, we can't, you know— we have greater horizons than they had then. We have we have so many things available to us. Luther's dealing with the situation where most of the people didn't know the Bible because they didn't speak Latin, right? They didn't have education. And so his whole effort is to uh, get the Bible into a local dialect, right, and get it out there. Um, so we can't, we can't ascribe to Luther or any of the other reformers as if they have knowledge that we have now. It, it, we can't take that for granted. Anyway, just a side note. No, you're totally right. And the, and the fact of the matter is that you, what, you, what you're saying about him fighting the Catholic Church is absolutely true. Should he have added the word alone? I'm not a German speaker, whether or not his claim to saying that he, uh, you know, it, need, it needed to be added so that the emphasis could come through into the German. Who knows? I, I can't attest to that. What I can say is that he probably shouldn't have added it. But the point is, is that he didn't do it simply because, uh, you know. It's not malicious. It's he's, not. He wasn't trying to show that. He wasn't trying to prove that Paul was against Torah, is my point. Let's keep going with what Scott here says. For example, where the Bible has Paul writing, we are saved by grace alone in Ephesians chapter 2. It's well known that Martin Luther added the word alone to the end of that verse. And that changed it considerably. Martin Luther... Once again, I, I, would, I would like to uh, just say that I don't think it changed it considerably. If you read the, if you read, uh, the passage... For we maintain, and I understand that he said the wrong verse here. He said you're, Ephesians. Okay, so you're applying it to. I'm, I'm applying what he's saying now to Romans three twenty eight. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith, 
apart from works of the law. So you're justified by faith, not by works. Okay, I don't think it changed it considerably. I, I agree that, that uh, Luther probably shouldn't have added it, but okay, let's keep going. It was well known for adding or changing a lot of things to his Bible. For example, he added the word mercy seat to kind of glamorize the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. That comes from the German Nadenstuhl, which is mercy seat. But the original or the ancient Hebrew text says kapareth, which simply means lid. It's not a mercy seat. We don't need to glamorize it. Let's just say what it is. Let me also state something up front here that a lot of people won't like, especially those who have left the churches recently. Some who have left the churches a long time ago have no problem acknowledging this, but others might. Paul's epistles are simply letters. That's all they are. Somebody wrote him a letter, and he wrote a letter back. That's all they are. Epistle is a Greek word for letter anyway. Okay, hang on. I do want to say, with all due respect to uh, to Scott, and I put a, a link to this video in your short show notes. If you if you don't get our show notes, please sign up for them. Go to TorahResource.com, hover over radio, and go down to the Robin Caleb Show. You can sign up for our show notes there. The point is, is that um, uh, he he I, I edited out a significant portion. Now he goes to Strong's numbers to try to show what uh, the word scripture means. Uh, if if Scott, if you are watching this, uh, I would I would just caution you that uh, that Strong's is not a lexicon. It is not a dictionary. Um, and if you want to, you can email me on that. Let's keep going on this though. I just want people to know that I did edit that part out just because I didn't think it was pertinent to the conversation. Paul's letters are not the word of the creator. They're the words of Paul. Unless of course he is quoting the creator that he did in parts of them. But other than that, it's just Paul's letters, just his writings. Paul was teaching or answering other letters that were written to him by people in the dispersion. We don't know what those letters were that were written to him. All we see are his replies. It's hearing like one side of a phone conversation. If you're hearing some guy talking in a room and you don't know what the other person's saying on the phone, it may be a little confusing to you because you don't know why they're replying the way they are. Well, this is the same case with Paul. We don't know why Paul replied the way he did in certain cases, like this whole thing about women should keep silent in the assemblies. Well, that's Paul's opinion because that's not a Torah command. Women don't have to keep silent in the assemblies. We don't know why he said that, but he was helping people out in different assemblies in the dispersion. So he may just been given some advice or doing some kind of traditional thing. We really don't know. Okay, so the point here is that what Scott is doing is trying to discount the, the Paul's epistles. And what he's doing is he's mistranslating, and we see this already. He do, he doesn't he hasn't understood uh, the passage that that Paul uh, says that women should be uh, quiet in the assemblies. We could talk about that. It's uh, on a different show. Uh, it doesn't mean the woman can't speak in in in, uh, in your church or in your synagogue. That's not what it means. Anyway, not the point. He's doing the same thing that the Christians did to get rid of the Torah. He's misinterpreting Paul. And now what he's doing is he's saying that Paul is not authoritative. He's not scripture. It's just a, the opinion of a man. Would he say the same thing about the Gospels? Oh, this is just Matthew's opinion? No, because he says that the Gospels are, are of Yeshua. Now, Yeshua's words are scriptural because he's... Yeah. No, but what about what about the Gospels where it's just telling a story, what Yeshua's not talking? There are so many problems with this. It's I mean, it, Well, not only that, it, it's Paul's, sometimes Paul's just writing a letter, like letter to the Galatians or... Letter to the Romans, right? These are just one way. It's not responses. 
he's responding to a situation, yeah, but he, the, what the characterization we just heard was that someone wrote him a letter and he wrote it back. Well, that, well um, what we also have to get into is the canonization of Scripture. What was the yeah. process of the canonization of Scripture? The fact of the matter is, is that believers were willing to die for Paul's epistles. His letters, they weren't willing to die for whatever he was right, whatever letter came to him in the beginning. There's a, there's a reason that the, that the scripture has been canonized as scripture anyway. So uh, I, you know, I think it's important that we make sure that people understand, okay, yes, Luther did add the word alone to, to the Romans passage, but still this, you know, this doesn't mean that we can discount Paul as not being scripture. And that's my point. And uh, yeah, okay. Um, let's and, see. Well, not only that. One other. Were you going to play more? Nope. Go for him. it. Okay. Is it Romans three twenty eight? What's the point? It's an uh, assertion of of chronology in the Torah that Abraham believed, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness by God. And that's before Sinai. That's before. Moses and the setting up of the Mishkan and the priesthood and all that. Therefore, any traditions built off the the Sinai revelation built up to say, oh, this is who's insider, and you're only righteous if you're um, in a, one of our sectarian groups, you know, that's interpreting uh, the commandments from Sinai. Paul's saying, no, not only that, he was uncircumcised still when he was reckoned as righteousness, as rec- when it was reckoned to him as righteous. Paul's just pointing out what's obvious to any person who comes and reads the Torah for the first time. In the book of Genesis, chronology, if it's the first time you've ever read the Torah, you're reading and you learn about this guy named Abraham, and you learn that he is reckoned as righteous before God. Paul's trying to tell yeah. Jews and Gentiles of his day, say, look, you Jews who are excluding these non-Jews and saying they're not, they don't have righteousness because they're not true Israel, you're missing that you're misreading and misrepresenting the very Torah that you claim to represent to the world. That's what he's, that's what he's pointing out. So alone but, is totally fine, you okay. know, in my view. I mean, it, it, it's just hammering the point down is all. Okay, so I want to uh, read a comment from the chat room. Thank you, P- uh, PJ, for, for catching this. I just said, the church rejected the Torah a thousand years before Luther, uh, end quote of me. Uh, PJ says, is there a separate lineage of antinomian versus Torah-observant churches by second century? I believe there is uh, into this once the second century comes in. Now, that's not to say that all believers and all Christians uh, rejected the Torah. In fact, we know that there were groups that that kept the Torah all the way into the fourth century. Um, whether or not they were her- heretical or not, that could obviously be debated. There were, uh, and not because of the Torah, obviously, but because uh, they rejected pa- the letters of Paul was one reason why. Uh, another reason was that they, uh, some of them, uh, were dabbling with uh, uh, with Gnosticism and the idea. Yeah. Anyway, th- there's a lot of different issues that are going on. We do see the Celtic churches all the way into uh, very late uh, keeping the uh, keeping the Shabbat and keeping the the festivals uh, in some instances, not across the board. So uh, I believe that there's been a remnant of believers in the church 
who have kept Torah or, and, and I think many, most of our viewers know what I mean by that, but uh, kept the uh, parts of the Torah that the rest of the church has right. given up, like the Sabbath and the festivals and the kosher laws. Uh, they've been doing that for a, a long time. And, so here's and a way throughout. to think of it. Think of the seed is good, right? It's like the parable of the sower. The seed is good. Yeah. Now, if the seed falls on different kinds of soils, different things are going to happen, right? I mean, if it falls on the wayside, you know, if it falls among thorns. Okay, so just think about the word of God being taken out across the world. You know, you're going to have times where literacy and the, there's enough relative peace and a high enough level of competency and ac access and access to good manuscript tradition. See, all these things are, have to be there for, for the believer to, to really grow very deeply in the Word of God. And when you have a history full of violence and persecution and migration and all this stuff, it's like it'll do some work and then boom, things move and it'll do some work things move. We live in a time right now where we have, we've been given a, a lot. We've been given more. Our generation has been given more in terms of access and the ability and relative ability to be educated and gain biblical literacy through competency in, in Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic, etc. And not only that, we have all these, uh, you know, Dead Sea Scrolls have been around, what, for not even 70 years and not even fully published for 20 years, you know. Oh, and we're, we still, all this we're, we're still seeing more come out, right? Yeah, we're still seeing so more of like, the Dead Sea Scrolls come out. We are in a situation historically right now where all the books are open in a way that they've never been open. Plus, we have the Internet and all this other technology. So, again, we have to remember not to take this for granted. This is really a precious moment that we live in. And... To, to whom much is given, much is expected, Yeshua says. So the people, you know, that are still thinking simplistically are, they, um, they need to grow up to the reality uh, of our situation so that they can stand with, with integrity and assess things honestly rather than trying to peddle like this guy we were just listening to. I mean, he's just, he needs to go back to school. He needs to stop you know, take the foot off the gas of, of his YouTube and put on the brake and go study for a few years, learn the languages, grab some, some, uh, you know, solid rock, find out where the rock is and then start building there. Don't, don't just start spewing this stuff where you make these kind of mistakes. And it's just like smoke screens, really. Luther battle. You're a legend in your own mind. Your mom goes to college. I think that view is headed for a deep mischief. Okay, let's move on. And we've spent plenty of time on, on Mr. Scott. And, and he said that, uh, I'm sorry to cut you off, Rob, but uh, he no, said. I was, going, I was waxing. Uh, he, 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 he said in his comment that he would, uh, he would uh, email us or tag us when he put his response video up. We look forward to it, Scott. I think you just use the Bible, do whatever the hell you like. Okay, so we're going to move on now. And we're going to move to our main topic, and and this is an interesting topic. I've I've written papers on on this kind of subject before, um, and the subject itself is tikkun olam. And for those who don't speak Hebrew or have never heard of tikkun olam, I, I do hope that we're uh, we're getting more of a Christian audience because uh, yeah, I think that's a, that would be very good for 
um, interaction, those kind of things. Uh, anyway, so uh, Tikkun Olam. What is Tikkun Olam? It means uh, the repairing of the world. Um, and recently, well, maybe not recently, throughout the ages, the actual term Tikkun Olam has essentially been hijacked. Even today, especially today. Okay, and uh, when you have people like uh, like Madonna saying that she's now a Kabbalist and things like that, and then the Jews, the Jewish rabbis are saying, no, no, no she's not a Kabbalist. She she thinks she's a Kabbalist. She's not. So then, what does Tikkun Olam uh, mean in, in terms of repairing the world for all these people? Well, uh, it, it seems like the term has been hijacked, much like you know. And when we look at the Messianic and the Hebrew roots movement, ter- like the words that we attach to things, like. Easter. Nobody wants to use the word Easter because it really means something else, right? Uh, it's big in the Hebrew roots movement that they say that Easter comes from Ishtar or Eostra, so they would never want to use that. Um, but at the same time, then they're willing to use something like the Kun Olam. So let's let's look at some of this. Let's look at, uh, here's a quote for you. This, uh, I'll tell you who the quote was from after I read the quote because I, I, I like doing that kind of thing. All Amer- This is a quote, quote, all Americans should question whether we're doing all that we can to work on Takun Olam, repairing the world. That means asking ourselves if we could be doing more to help those who are hungry or in need of shelter. If we could be doing more to make sure everyone has access to health care. And if we could be doing more to build a brighter future where no one is left out or left behind. The person who made that quote was Hillary Clinton. And let's see, uh, since we're on the presidential theme, I guess, even though she was never a president. Uh, let's listen. She to... would have been. <laughs> yes. Yes, of course. Okay. Let's, uh, no politics on this show. Let's, uh, but, but let's listen to another, let's listen to another, pol- uh, a politician on, on Takun Olam. And as a man who's been inspired in my own life by that timeless calling within the Jewish experience, Tikkun Olam, <laughs> I am hopeful that we can draw upon what's best in ourselves to meet the challenges that will come to win the battles for peace in the wake of so much war and to do the work of repairing this world. That's your job. That's my job. That's the task of all of us. Okay, so Takuna Alam is the task of all of us, according to Barack Obama. Now, it's a timeless, did he say it's a timeless concept yeah, yeah, within yeah. Jewish experience? Yeah, and we'll talk about that in a second. Hang on wow. just a second. I, I want not to, not to bash uh, you know, uh, our, a former president, but I, I do find this funny. Let's listen one more time just to this one part. Jewish experience. Tikkun Olam. I am hopeful. Now, now listen, to the, listen to the pause here. He says, Tikkun Olam, and he, he kind of gets it, he, he gets it right for the most part. He's hesitant. You can tell that he doesn't know if he's saying it right. And the crowd doesn't know if he's saying it right either. Listen, they, they're like, did he say it right? Did he, is, is, that, is, is that right? And, and then they hold, and then they clap. Listen. I am hopeful uh, that we can oh, draw oh. Tikkun Olam. I am hopeful. Oh, there we go. Yeah, we think he said it right. Uh, tikkun Olam. <laughs> Okay, so, so we need to have. Do you have a? Every time we say it today, you have to have the applause. I'm going to test you. Oh no, no. Okay, so what's the assumption here is that everybody know that everybody knows what this means. First of all, right? Because they're clapping. 
Well, okay. What, wait, wait, hang on what just do, a second. What do these two politicians have in common? Okay, wait, hang on just a second. Well, the, the thing that they do have in common in both these instances is that they're speaking to the like the Jewish League of Americans or something like that. So they're 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 trying to use words and concepts that are gonna hit well for uh the religious the religious people. Uh the interesting thing about this and, is and they're gonna be <clears> left leaning. <throat> we got it, we got it that these are progressive social values that are smuggled in, which is going to include uh, gay marriage. Sure. It's going to include... Healthcare. Uh, yeah. And they're uh, making it a, political. A, a women's right to choose. Yeah, exactly. What it, you know, Whatever that unpacks to be. Okay, but um, hang, on, wait, hang on just a sec, though. Uh, now, now, look, a lot of people, and I'm sure probably I haven't been looking at the chat room. Not but to I'm, enforce gender categories. Well, I'm, I'm sure that a lot of people, probably even people in the, in the chat room, are going to say, yeah, 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 but these are politicians. They're just waxing boldly on a concept that they have no clue about. That's not what, what Tikkun Olam is all about. I almost pulled some clips from a Messianic rabbi. Um who uh, who started to talk about Tikkun Olam? He hypothesized, or he said that it was prevalent within Reform synagogues. That's totally not true. Um, not the point. This is a great email, and this is where the this is uh, an email that I think is worth reading. We're this person. I is a friend of mine. He's well respect. I respect him a lot. He's part of a ministry and I'm not going to use his name because I don't want anyone to think that I'm speaking against him in, in this. Uh, he wrote an email in, and this is a great email to read because it shows that even people in the messianic or Hebrew roots movement are not quite, they don't quite understand exactly what Takuna Alam is actually all about. This is the email quote. I think I've heard you mention in the Robin Caleb show before that you find the Tikkun Olam tradition to be unbiblical, putting it in the same category as things like Hebrew word pictures. Ah, uh, yes, even worse than that. I think it's, uh, I think it's from the dark side, to be honest with you. Uh, so he keeps going. Am I understanding your viewpoint correctly? If so, can you give me some insight into why you believe that? Do you think the concept is contrary to scripture or a distraction from what we should be focused on? I understand Tikkun Olam was developed much later. So we shouldn't try to force the tradition into the scriptures. That's true. But isn't there some biblical basis for it? It means to repair the world. Isn't Israel, and by extension, the Ger who joins Israel uh, through Yeshua, called to be a repairer of the breach, the restorer of paths to dwell in? Didn't the prophets and the apostles speak about justice and taking care of the oppressed, thus making the positive the, a positive difference? There might be some unbiblical aspects of Tikkun Olam, that I'm unaware of, but as far as I can tell, it seems to be a good tradition that is in alignment with what the scriptures teach. Okay, so this is actually really good, and I'm, thank you very much to the person who wrote this email to us, because uh, this actually, what it does, and I'm not trying to put this person down, what it does, though, is it does show that uh, I think some people within the Hebrew roots and Messianic world don't quite understand where Tikkun Olam comes from or what the theological basis behind it is. You can't, it's like, it would be like saying... It would be like saying the doctrines of grace or Calvinism. When we say I'm a Calvinist, which and we've talked about this a lot on the on the show. If I were to say I'm a Calvinist, there is a specific thing that goes on in people's minds that it's attached to. And when you say Tikkun Olam within Judaism, guess what? There's a specific theology and there's a specific belief that goes along with what Tikkun Olam is. It is not simply being a good person, although that is what a lot of people who are not in Judaism have attempted to to uh, to, to make it mean. So where do we want to start? 
Rob, you want to you want to go? Well, I like from the get go, and this is good because you mentioned the you know Easter and things like that, uh, other terms that float around. It, it reminds me of where um, I think it's some Pharisees come up to Yeshua and they say, "Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not?" And he says, "Well, show me what you mean. Show me the coin." And and he's they show it to him. and He says, "Whose picture is on it?" And they say, "Oh, it's Caesar's." He's like, well, give it, give it to Caesar. If that's Caesar's, give it to Caesar. But give to God what's God's. Okay, so the point is this. is If we have, if you think of these terminologies, these different terms, as currency, as coins that you trade in, yeah. right? The word Messiah. In the first century, that, the coin, this is a metaphor, the coin, Messiah coin, was all over. Different groups were using it, and they were um, affecting its value by how they were spending the coin. Right. Well, then Yeshua comes along and he kind of withholds using the title outright because he knows there's all this noise already about this term Messiah. He just lives it out and walks it out. And and then he becomes the the chief cornerstone, though. Right. He is the 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 stone that the builders reject has become the chief cornerstone. That's who he is. He didn't. It, Yeshua's. Uh, uh, ministry, the effectiveness of his shed blood, his ascension, the effectiveness of his ongoing intercession, has nothing to do with whether this word Christos is put on him or Mashiach, because he is, who he is is the substance of the deal. Now, so we got to figure out words that aren't defined in the Bible, right? If there's a word that someone starts putting in our conversation that we need to use, but it's not found in the Bible, now all of a sudden we have to Figure out, are we going to use it or not? If we're not going to use it, fine. If we are going to use it and it's not in Scripture, now I have to somehow kind of argue why we should use it. Well, if it's a word that helps us understand the, the gospel, promise theology, etc., to the degree that it helps us understand that, that, that'll be helpful for our communities, and that's where we want to spend our time for, in instruction. But if it's a word that originates from another kind of concept of the world and we're trying to make it fit well it should fit because we kind of think it's a jewish thing and um and the listening to barack obama or to the hillary clinton quote shows the same thing it's like they're trying to use this symbol because they think it's going to get them traction in a particular community when in fact the meaning though the only reason the word tikkun olam has has the currency it has in even progressive left Jewish world of America today is because of what of because it, they're just on the coattails of the Kabbalists um, from Safed. Yeah, yeah right? exactly. And, and, and now it's true that uh, that tikkun mipnei uh, tikkun olam occurs a couple times in the Mishnah, but it has to do mostly with family, Jewish family, uh, you know, divorce situations. Um, that the get needs to have a certain amount of signatures to confirm that the woman is released from the marriage. Another is uh, when Hillel uh, prescribes the uh, the prosbul, which is where he allows judges to or people can secure a loan over through the shemitah year, through the year of release. People can hold on to their uh, and not forgive the debt and retain the the loan. Over there, that's that's why it says mitnei tikkun olam for the sake of tikkun olam. Well, how could that be a Torah principle? If I'm equipping bankers to uh, not, you know, f- for their loans to override the command of the shemitah or the year of release, then 
it's like, okay, is that the where's the Torah being fulfilled there? So even in the earliest Mishnah where it's Tikkun Olam, you have to wonder, is it supporting a biblical view, or is or is it more of a of what the Jewish leaders at the time thought would help their society at that time without necessarily regard whether or not Torah was being fulfilled or not? But by the time, definitely by the time you get to uh, the Kabbalists at Safed or Svat, it is taken on. A completely totally different new, meaning. yeah, yeah. That that basically God is broken, right? I mean, the whole Lurianic uh, myth, or it's like agnosticism, really. That that Adam, when they make, you know, the first Adam was made, he his job was to finish the the tikkun olam. He had to finish repairing the world because there had been this, you know, God had. Okay, wait, 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 Zoom, right? Well, yeah, All this but, stuff. But hang on just a sec. Wait, 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 wait. You, you, you got to stop because our, a lot of our listener, listener base is not going to know what in the world you're talking about. The, the, the Kabbalah, the Kabbalist, uh, started talking about the idea of infinity. And if God is infinite in things like holiness, and He's infinite in things, which I would agree with, He is infinite in holy, holiness, right? If He's infinite in love, which He, He also is. Okay, so these are concepts that we actually can get behind and we see in Scripture. Okay, but. What they say is that if God is infinite, then uh, and uh, let's say that uh, that, for instance, space. If He's infinite in space, that means that anything that is in space or time is actually detracting from God. So then, God is not infinite in that anymore. This is the, this is their mindset, okay? And this gets this gets very weird. I think this is actually taken. My personal opinion is that they took this from uh, somewhat of Eastern religions and and other religions, and they kind of built their own theology around these things. We see this early on in Judaism: amulets being used and and um, and uh, being able to say incantations over things to heal people and, and things like this. So. The idea of of infinite, uh, the of God being infinite, they had they they hypothesized how God could create the world. The world could be in space and time, and God could still be infinite in space and time if we're here. And what they came up with was that God has twelve different emendations. He, he has twelve different uh, levels of himself, essentially emanations, emanations, the, the ten spherot. Yeah, the, the ten spherot, and so. Uh, Basically, what they say is that God expanded himself and then retracted, and that's where we start to come in. But basically, the thought is is that everything is kind of an illusion in some regard, um, that really God is everything. Not that everything is in God, but God is everything. So I'm part of God, you're part of God, the table is God, uh, it's all God. It's not in, you know, God's not in it, it is God. And the way that they came to uh, deal with evil, and I know this sounds really weird, but the way that they came to deal with sin and evil and evil in the world is that they said that there were these vessels that were trying to hold some of the uh, some of the higher part of the Sefi wrote or the higher parts of God, and the the, the vessels couldn't hold him anymore, and so they shattered and they broke, and these were actually pieces of God that fell down into the universe, and these shattered pieces are really God. And this is where you get evil in the world. So basically what Kabbalah teaches at this point in Kabbalistic theology is that God is sin. If that doesn't sound heretical to you, I don't know what should. But the point is, is that they say that God is broken and this is how we have evil and sin in the world. And what we do is anything that we do since we're, since we also are God, anything that we do that's good helps 
repair this vessel. Well, wait, wait. You you got to be careful. Don't conflate too much because there's there's Lurianic in there, and then there's later Hasidic in there that you're mixing. But there there, the general point, the general contours are along those lines. That, but it's not just doing good. It's not like Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama saying, "Oh, you know, we need we all need to work to heal. We need to do uh, tikkun olam." For the Kabbalists, it's it. It required very specific notions of purity, the uh, belief in in the attainment, what they called the attainment of Ruach HaKodesh, the attainment of the Holy Spirit through asceticism, such as self, uh, you know, flogging, fasting, um, even rolling in thorns. This was all at, at, and all the calculations of how many flogs and how many days of fasting is all calculated based on gematria, on word numbers from from different words matching other words in 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 the in uh gematria code and that they believed that they were and so it's very much halakha though too that they're uh in other words and you have to be jewish you know a, a gentile cannot affect tikkun olam for the kabbalists that, that's a silly idea um uh but but the repair and and kind of in there is the idea of a it's kind of a response in some ways to uh, the orig- origin of sin, or what do they call original sin, because uh, according to the, the Safed Kabbalists, at least, that Adam had the opportunity to finish the tikkun of all this shattering of the vessels that Caleb was talking about that happened before he was made, but he sinned, he fell, and he, his, he clung to the, these klipot, which are these, these, these shattered um, uh, husks or whatever, these broken vessel pieces, and that now somehow the rabbis believe that they can acquire the holiness necessary to regather all these and to help bring God. A, that and, the Shekinah, the Shekinah is is in exile, and and to another, bring and to bring the Messiah who will yeah. who will finish the job. And this is the chat. The chat room is is making note of this. Um, this I, I want to read just a, a very short snippet from this. This is uh, now I mentioned this already. I, I at least I think I did. This is in your show notes. It's a paper that I wrote. It's you know I don't think it's very well written, <laughs> but uh, it's there and it has the basic information of the Kabbalistic uh, theology in it. And, and uh, you can also find this on the Torah Resource website for free. It's called Comrade or Counterfeit uh, Hasidic Judaism versus Messianic Faith. Um, so in it uh, I, I I give a quote here and I'm going to read the quote. Um, and this is from, this quote originally comes from the Essential, Ju- uh, Essential Judaisms published by uh, Pocket Books, okay? It says, as Dov, Dov Be'ir, the Magid of Mezirich, the best successor uh, as leader of the rapidly expanding Hasidic flock, explained it, since the evil once resided in the Godhead itself, it must have been good at its origin. If we can return it to the source, it will not only be cleansed of its evilness, but its force will be added to the goodness of the divine. So basically, the way that I understand this, and Rob, you can you can uh, you can correct me here if I'm wrong, but everything that we do here on this earth, according to Kabbalistic uh, uh, theology, there is a counter effect or an effect that happens in the war that's going on in the heavenly realm between the angels and God and all this kind of stuff. If we do something good, like we say our prayers in the exact right way, or, you know, we say the the prayers out of the prayer book in the exact right way, then that's a strike for good 
in the heavenly realm. If we do something bad or we don't do something right, like we say the prayer's wrong or out of order or something like that, it's a strike against the heavenly warriors in this realm. And the more good we do, do, the more God is repaired. And this, my friends, is heretical. We don't control God. We don't control any of this. And that's the point. This comes from like an Eastern weird, I don't know what theology, I don't know where it comes from. It certainly is not from the Bible though. And the idea that we as believers can somehow help repair God, God is not broken. Sin, sin came into the world through Adam, not through God. And the idea and that God became flesh to, yes. to, that's how, that's how it was to, fixed. Yeah. To help so us. If, if someone, yeah. The, the, um, I, that, in my mind, I'll, I'll say this and then I'll let you go, uh, keep going. But in my mind, the, the theology of Takun Olam is a direct, a direct assault on the true gospel of the Messiah. If we do enough good stuff, guess what? God's repaired and the Messiah comes and then we're all saved. No, the Messiah came, shed his blood for us so that the sin that we created is, is alleviated out of our lives and we can once again commune with God. This doesn't even, I mean, we haven't even touched on the idea of reincarnation, which also, uh, which also plays into the whole idea of tikkun olam within the, the Hasidic theology. Yeah. Yeah. So it's one of these things is, uh, who's using the term, how, how, what do they mean by it? And if I'm going to use it, do I need to use it and just take, take for granted that everybody knows what I mean by it? Or do I need to use it? and then try to explain people a new definition of it or an alternative definition of it and then keep pushing that term with an alternative definition. I mean, the big one, we, the big term we see that with is Mashiach, right? I mean, sure. so you have, you have um, the Christian faith has retained the word Messiah and Christos, um, claiming that it's not an underdefined term that can you just use wherever you want. It actually points to one specific Hamashiach in all of time who did a very specific um, uh, act, you know, for with with very specific consequences, right, in, in historical time. Sure. And, and, but the, you know, unbelieving Jewish communities that have rejected the gospel, they, they're going to still use the term Messiah, but they're going to make it mean something different. So do we want to, you know, do we want to get on a hill and fight to use the term tikkun olam? I just, I don't see a good, uh, I, I don't see a strength in that. I don't see that coming from a position of strength. I see it coming from a position of like trying to do what, you know, some way, maybe not as brutal, but like what Hillary Clinton and, and uh, Barack Obama did is just like trying to like appeal to a certain um, uh, liberal Jewish uh, ear, right? Because um, everybody all like they clap when they hear it. But what do they mean? Do they are they talking about keeping the commandments? Are they talking about um, bringing the Messiah and repairing God? No, they're thinking about gay rights and you know women's right to choose and free health care. You know that's what they're that's that's the kind of thing that they're 
uh, having well, in mind. So, like, so what, there's there's another aspect to this too. Let's pretend, you know, one of the things, and this this might be a, a little bit of a rabbit trail. One of the things that really gets me very very upset on on uh, Facebook and and in some of the groups that I'm in is when people uh, when believers say and believers who are Torah pursuant and have come out of the church, they say, oh well, anyone who's in the church is still in Babylon and, and isn't saved. This is total nonsense, and I can't stand it. But let's let's leave that alone for now. But let's pretend that you're around people who uh, are are still in the church, or you're you know you're talking to a friend or somebody that you just met who's in the church, and you know you're having a good conversation. You're talking about oh yeah blah blah tikkun olam. Okay, now in your mind you're thinking oh yeah repairing the world. You know we're 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 trying to do good in the world. We're trying to show people the light of the Messiah. Okay, then that person doesn't know what that means. They go and they they Google tikkun olam or whatever. Guess what? What comes up is going to make you look like you are a Kabbalist and it's going to make you look like you're a heretic. That's all there is to it. You can't try to redefine words according to what, you know, and the idea that, that these politicians and, and, or anyone would say, oh, well, you know, this means, you know, doing, doing good in the world and, and free healthcare. Uh, this is total not, or that it's everyone's obligation, everyone's obligation to do what? To have heretical theolo- theology, to attack the, the true gospel of the Messiah Yeshua? I don't think so. It's a, it's, it's a key word. Here's the problem. The problem is it's not defined by Scripture. Second, it's a key word in a strange mythology. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, like, I mean, imagine, well, here, here, just to put it in another way, think of like Lord of the Rings. Like, well, except that's, he's written by, written by a Christian. But think like, we got to destroy the ring. You know, like, like if I was just like, well, what are you guys doing? Well, you know, we're just, we got to take the ring to, uh, Mordor. Is it Mordor or Endor? Or I don't remember where, but we got to, we got to take it to put it in the fire of doom or whatever. You know, that's what we got to do. And people are like, well, what are you talking about? Well, we have a fellowship because we're working together to destroy the ring. Well, people would be like, is he like, he's using a mythology to, to like communicate something else well he must really like johnny cash man with the ring man so it creates a lot of noise (laughs) it creates a lot of noise that's that's my opinion uh so on on that note though i i do want to share because the look uh the word letta cane is in the scripture it's the verb occurs in ecclesiastes you know that which is crooked cannot be made straight um, who can straighten what God has uh, bent? No, so no, no, no. Wait, is, wait. You said Lucatain. Explain to our audience what that means. Oh, li- oh. The, it's just an infinitive, a verbal form of tikkun, like to tikkun something. Right? Is to in the Bibles to make straight. Um, but it's also so it's used three times only, uh, and it's always in Ecclesiastes or Kohelet. Mm-hmm. And then finally, it's it's used in Ecclesiastes twelve, where it says that the preacher or the Kohelet arranged many meshalim. It says, Tikain meshalim harbe, at the end of 12.9. He arranged or established many proverbs. So the idea there is not repair, but either to straighten or to set in order. So that's the biblical definition. But it's used a lot in Aramaic, and I just wanted to share that actually in the Peshitta New Testament, so the translation from Greek into Aramaic sometime in the second or, th- you know, probably third, third century or fourth century. 
um, we have Hebrews 11.3, where it says, By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. Right? Well, the, the uh, Aramaic used there is from the verb tav kufnun. Uh, and it it reads there, it says, by faith we understand, and then it says, that the almei, the worlds, the olamot, olamim in Hebrew, were it um, takanu, uh, from that they were established by the word of God, and that things seen came from were made of things that were not seen. So, so here's the earliest place I've found in Christian, what we call Christian literature, where we have the verb from takan with the object being olam, or word, world, and it's, it's an Aramaic translation of Hebrews 11.3. It's not a bad translation, but it's saying that God did this. He established, he framed, he created the world by his word. That's all it's saying. It's not. It's not in any kind of idea that someone's that it's broken, and now people have to purify themselves in order to accomplish something that is broken in the universe. It's not that at all. Um, it's rather just saying that just like God created the world, he 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 established the worlds, and, and that's um, just a, a little footnote there on the use of the verb takan. Tav Kuf Nun with uh, object of, of the world, so to, to fix the world or whatever. Can I just uh, take a, a total total side note that's not even related to, to this? Real quick, mm-hmm. I, I just have to say, you know, Andre uh, is in the is in the uh, chat room right now, typing in the chat room from Edinburgh, Scotland. Uh, I am so jealous. Uh, Andre is a student at Torah Resource Institute. He is writing his uh, his uh, thesis right now on Alexander Hislop. Are you his advisor, Rob? Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm uh, kind of a good conversation partner with him, helping him as he. It's amazing. I'm looking so, really so, really looking forward to what Andre's doing. Andre, uh, I mean, this. I remember when I was single, and I didn't uh, spend my time or my money nearly as wisely as Andre is doing. Uh, but uh, Andre, because he is uh, young and able, and uh, and is doesn't has doesn't have a family uh, to uh, carry around the world as of right now, is in. Uh, <laughs> is in Edinburgh, Scotland. I think, I could be wrong, and correct me if I'm wrong, Andre, uh, I think he's in Edinburgh, Scotland, specifically to do research on his pa- on his thesis paper for uh, Tor Resource Institute. I mean, what an amazing opportunity. I'm so jealous. Edinburgh is one of the, uh, it's like top of my list of places that I haven't been and want to go to. Um, so, yeah, we're looking forward to, uh, I'm looking forward to reading uh, this thesis, it's going to be a good one. And not only that, but it looks like Andre is on track to be the first student of Torah Resource Institute to complete the three-year program. I'm in the three-year program. I'll probably end up taking nine years to do it at the, at the pace I'm going. I'm taking like one class a, a quarter at this point. Uh, congratulations, Andre. We're happy for you. We're 
jealous, righteously jealous of the uh, work that you're doing right now <laughs> and the experiences that you're having over there in Scotland. What a great time. Okay. Um, we're taking next week off. And uh, we're gonna have to play something that we uh, that we've that we've pre-recorded. Uh, we're not gonna pre-record anything. You know, we don't ask for prayer very much on this show, but I would uh, ask that uh, those who listen on a regular basis would be in prayer for us. Uh, Rob is preparing now for uh, four different presentations. That includes uh, one in Israel. Uh, well, uh, two presentations at camp, I believe, and then uh, two presentations also at the uh, SBL this year. Uh, so they're spread out a little bit, but there's a lot, I mean, a lot that is going on, uh, in, in his, in his world. He's, uh, we're going to give him a week off so he can hopefully start, uh, getting, making some headway on, on writing, uh, for his presentations. I am taking on a, uh, very, very large job <clears throat> with regard to the Tor resource website. Um, and it's all part of trying to, uh, combine the sites and make them look better and, and work more workable for, uh, for our students and for our for our customers who want to come and uh, purchase the the work that we've done, um, and so uh, and also to try to get the name of Tor Resource out there in front of uh, more people, um, yeah. So if you could be in prayer for us, that'd be great. Thank you to the chat room. What a uh, what a, I think this worked really well, and I think that we're just going to keep going uh, with the chat room on YouTube and live streaming on YouTube. Now that I've figured it all out. And, uh, yeah. Anything else you want to say before we, uh, before we take a week off, Rob? Oh yeah. I would like, uh, this is a, you thought that was your comment about, uh, Andre was off topic. I have something even more off topic. Let's hear it. I, I've, I think I've, uh, invented a new drink called the Hoff goes off. Did I tell you about it? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, tell me what it is. Tell me what it is. So what you do for those who have juicers, or if you go to a juice bar, you can have and do a custom so you've got lemon. <laughs> I'm serious. Follow me here. So you got the core is is how much lemon? Uh, it's, no, uh, well, it, I like more lemon, but I like half a lemon. Okay. But with the juice, I I I do the old thing: slice a lemon in yeah, half, and yeah. I and I do the juice. So I get lemon in the bottom of the thing, and then in the juicer, I put pretty much equal parts of carrot, apple, and beet. Like one big beet, couple carrots, couple apples. And a swig of celery, like a stick or two of celery. Then, now this is not an order, but but I also have like a third or a half of a jalapeno pepper, depending on how hot the jalapeno is and what you can handle, and a chunk of ginger. And you got to throw those in while you're doing the carrots and the apples, right? I'm not a ginger fan. So that's a, a drink I've been uh, making for my juice, trying to you know put good stuff in the in the first house that the Lord sure. gave blessed me with. Sure, sure. And uh, I'm, yeah, it's got some kick. It's got some ginger. It's got some jalapeno in there. So wait, you're and actually like, putting, you're putting, you're like cutting up a jalapeno and putting it in there, or are you getting no, those? about a, no, I'm I'm putting, uh, I put a piece of jalapeno you know, in the juicer with the ginger, and then I, you know, do a couple carrots and apple pieces after that, so it forces it through. Boy, when that jalapeno goes through, it's like, woo, just the smell. I can see you like getting gloves on and like some protection goggles, a hairnet or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. It's like bubbling. No, it's just, uh, I I call it Hoff goes off because it's spicy, but it's good for you. Okay. I'm sorry. I've been looking at the chat room, uh, just trying to keep up here. This is a very good point. Registration for camp is not closed. 
Registration for camp is not closed. The deadline, May 1st, what that is, is we will save a room for you or save a bed for you if you register and pay your deposit before May 1st. Now what happens is if you sign up for camp now, if somebody else signed up and didn't pay their deposit, you get their bed. So we aren't holding spots at camp anymore. And there's not a lot of spots right. and left. The reason, it, the, the reason is just we you have to do that. You know, we have to... It's just a nature of necessity. It's not trying to... Well, what ends up happening is that 130 people, 135 people will sign up for camp. And then the last, uh, you know, then a month before camp happens, 40 people will drop out. And, you know, so uh, that's why we do that. Um, the point is, is that if you want a bed at camp, get it now. Register now and pay your deposit now. Because if you pay your deposit now, you won't get bumped. But people who haven't paid their deposit yet... They're, they're, they no longer ha have a hold on a bed. It's like they're interested in coming, but they haven't, you know, they don't have a hold on a bed. So the point is, is if you want to come to camp, please, uh, we got, and what a great theme we have. I'm glad Lois brought this up. Thank you, Lois, for bringing this up. Um, what a great theme we have. We're going to be looking at Bible study methods and we're going to be looking at, okay, I'm by myself. How do I, how do I study the Bible on my own? Or I, I'm a, I'm a dad or a mom and I, I want to help my kids in, uh, in devotions. How should I prepare for that in Bible study? Or how should we read the word together? What tools can I use? All these kind of things. It's going to be great. Uh, Rob is presenting. My father, Tim Hag is presenting. I think Gary Springer is presenting as well. Um, and who else is, I, I think we'll probably, we always have at least one or two other people, uh, guest people who come in, usually either students from Torah Resource Institute who have written things or, uh, you know, or, uh, we'll bring in a, a guest speaker as well. We've had Ariel Berkowitz before, which is great. We've had Spike Pasaris before, which is also really great. He, uh, he, he spoke last year on creationism. Um, so anyway, uh, and Andre is going to be there so we can, we can, uh, try to sneak peeks at his thesis before, uh, before it's published and all these kind of things. So, um, I would highly, highly suggest if you want to come to camp, please let us know right away. You can sign up on torresource.com. Okay. As I said before, we're taking next week off. And so, uh, we will try to either have a best of, or we'll have a show that we've done in the past. A big thank you to everybody in the chat room. It's really great to see. We had, uh, I think at one point we had 25 people in the chat room uh, talking about great stuff. And, and I know it's a hard time for people. Uh, also, be thinking about this. We're thinking about doing a call-in show once a month. Once a month, at the end of the month, we would do a call-in show. You could call in and talk to us about the things that you've uh, heard in the past month. Tell us what you think about that. Seahag at TorahResource.com. That's Seahag at TorahResource.com. Also call our comment line. And our comment line is 253-465-3205. Until next time, we hope that this conversation has done one thing. That's glorify our great God and Savior, Yeshua, the Messiah. <laughs>